0: You're listening to Local Church Podcast. We hope this message helps you to be with and follow Jesus. Enjoy the sermon. Hey, it's so good to see you all here tonight at Local Church. Uh, fun to get to be down here instead of up there. I'm sure most of you are used to seeing me up there. Um, fun to actually have a, an actual like trained worship leader who's leading tonight. Thanks, Michaela, for leading us. Um, yeah, I have the honor to bring the word tonight um, a lot of you guys uh, will know that in addition to getting to worship lead here, I also have the honor of leading Thrive, which is Gig Harbor's multi-church young adult ministry. And I uh, know a lot of you guys from there, or uh, from there in the past. Um, so yeah, preaching is something I just love getting to do. It's an honor to get to do it. So uh, we're in the middle of looking at one of the four biographies of Jesus' life here at local church. Uh, there are four biographies of Jesus. This one is the one according to Luke. And um, today we're going to be looking at chapter 16, so if you've got a Bible, uh, take a look at Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read here from the beginning all the way down to verse 15, and uh, get ready. This is um, kind of an intense little passage, uh, kind of a confusing head-scratcher here, so uh, don't worry, hopefully hopefully we'll make some sense of it. So here's uh, Luke 16. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in, their dea- in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is not your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay, so there's the passage. Uh, probably it raises some questions. Uh, we're gonna look at that. Uh, but just by way of the introduction, this passage is a passage that deals with money. Um, This is a passage about money. Um, At the end of this passage, verse 13, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money, a pretty famous verse. Uh, And of course, anytime the Bible addresses the subject of money, uh, you know what we tend to do, especially I think as like American Christians? We tend to like kind of cringe, maybe twist a little bit in our seats. Um, We just a lot of times get super uncomfortable when the Bible starts talking about money, um, you know, maybe one legitimate reason uh, could be that, like, maybe in your life experience, you've actually seen a lot of churches who have twisted what the Bible says about money uh, for selfish gain. You know, so um, I don't know if there's any like people here who have ever visited the Instagram channel uh, "Preachers and Sneakers" before. Pretty, pretty awful, pretty disgraceful. It's got like these snapshots of these famous preachers. And it'll show like the shoes they're wearing, or like the jacket they're wearing, and then it'll show like next to it like the 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 place where it's sold for, like on Amazon. And it's like you know, a guy wearing like a twelve hundred pair, you know, a twelve hundred dollar pair of sneakers or something, or like a fifteen hundred dollar jacket, you know, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, whatever. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy is being paid. You know, like this is coming from like the tithes of his church members. And look at how he's using and abusing. Uh, God's money. (laughs) But Jesus is the only one who has ever lived who had perfect financial integrity. Jesus had perfect financial integrity. He never misused money. And in fact, he never enriched himself with other people's money, mostly because he didn't have much money, if he had any money at all. And so I just want to start with that and say that that's a huge comfort as we look at this passage because it means that whatever Jesus has to say about money He's saying that for our good. He's saying it to bless us. He's not saying it to exploit us. So what does Jesus have to say about money? Um, This passage is going to pose for us three questions about money. Number one, what do you believe about money? Number two, how do you use money? And then number three, are you free from money? what do you believe about it how do you use it and are you free from it so, so first off what do you believe about it and you might be thinking you know, okay what is there to believe about money you know it's pretty practical like money buys stuff money gets stuff you need money to survive you know end of story <laughs> but jesus says oh no 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 not so fast <laughs> money is different you know think about it you know you you say you need money to survive but you also need food to survive, you need water to survive, you need clothes to survive, you need shelter to survive. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen a lottery ticket that pays you in t-shirts and blue jeans, you know? And, and, and I've never seen a casino that pays you out in grocery store gift cards. Okay, so, so we know that money is more than just a survival tool. It's got some kind of unique influence over us that's unlike other things. And uh, the ancients knew this. You know, For example, Seneca, the famous Roman philosopher, said this about money. He said, it's not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. he's basically saying that money is more to us than just mere survival. And modern people know it too. So here's a quote from the famous German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. Uh, Wealth, this is so memorable. Wealth, he says, is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. Uh, Or uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Money often costs too much. (laughs) Pretty simple. So see, there's all this philosophizing about money in uh, times past and times present. And what that tells us is that money is just, it's way more than just a tool, uh, way more than a means to an end to, to, to most of us. And that the way that we treat money and the way that we lust after money tells us that kind of, uh, in, the, in the subterranean belief systems of our hearts, that we're believing things about money that amount to money being more than just money. So it really does matter what you believe about money. What, what do we believe about it? And what does Jesus say we should believe about it? Um, and that's what he's going to explain. And he he explains it by way of this parable. Um, this parable about a financial manager. Uh, now, we, we know something about financial managers today. You know, they're the kind of people who work at like Edward Jones or Charles Schwab. You know, uh, back then, they had financial managers as well. Um, and... Their job was to manage their master's portfolio uh, so that the master wouldn't have to. So that's kind of who this guy is in this parable. Uh, but look at, look at verse 1. In verse 1, you find out that the manager in this parable has been being irresponsible with his master's assets. Um, the phrase Jesus uses is that he was wasting his possessions, Uh, You know, we're not told whether this was because he was uh, cheating, you know, doing something kind of underhanded with it, or maybe he was just not a very good manager. He was kind of being sloppy. Um, It doesn't say, but all we know is that the master is, is apparently dissatisfied with his ROI, with his return on his investment. And so he tells the manager, hey, your services are no longer going to be required. So here's this guy, you know, he's staring down the barrel of unemployment. And so in verse three, he has this little conversation with himself and he says, uh, what shall I do? <laughs> Since my master is taking my management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Um, so in other words, you know, he's got the problem that probably a lot of white collar people would have in his kind of position. You know, like, he's a white-collar worker. His world is the world of sitting at desks and pushing paper. He's basically saying, like, look, I'm too scrawny for blue-collar work. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't know the first thing about tearing apart a transmission or working on a car or whatever. And he's too proud to file for unemployment. But then in verse 4, he has a little epiphany. He says, aha, you know, I've got it. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'll do to look out for myself. So he calls all the people who owe his master money, And very happily for them, he trims down their debt. So he says, okay, hey, you owe my master, uh, you know, a hundred jugs of olive oil. You know, how about let's make that 50? You know, wink, wink. (laughs) Or, you know, you owe my master a hundred shipments of wheat, you know, because based on what I see here, it looks like it's really only 80, you know, (laughs) Now, now, by the way, some think that this is kind of obvious fraud, uh, all his clientele would have known it. Uh, some think maybe he's merely foregoing the commission that he would have made on managing his master's ass- uh, his assets, uh, you know, so his clientele would have considered what he does here above board. We're not totally sure, but regardless, what has the manager done here? He's made himself a whole network of people who are now extremely obliged to him for what he's done. They're like kind of in, d- in his debt, so to speak. And so he knows that once he's out of the job, he's got a fat Rolodex of people that he can call on for favors. He's got like, some social, he's got like a social security net now. <clears throat> so uh, in verse four, he, he, he puts it this way. He says, because of kind of this little tactic here, now people may receive me into their houses. Okay, so there's sort of what he does. But now here's where the story takes a really interesting turn. Look at verse eight. In verse eight, it says... The master commended the dishonest manager. <laughs> you know, you probably weren't expecting that. You know, how could the master, whose own manager appears to be stealing from him, how could he commend this guy? Uh, but I want you to, this is where it's actually so important that you really, like, read the text for what it says and pay attention to every little detail. Because notice here, Jesus is extremely careful to qualify the master's praise. The text says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Not for his dishonesty, not for his thievery. You know, the text doesn't justify his actions. It doesn't say that they were right. The thing that the master commends him for, the only thing the master commends him for is for his shrewdness. It's a word that can be translated, you know, to acting wisely, acting prudently, You know, in other words, here's kind of what the scenario seems to be. You know, is the master glad that his manager defrauded him? Probably not. You know, we can almost imagine him saying, you know, man, that was low. (laughs) You know, don't you dare think that I'm not mad about what you did. But, you know, I've got to hand it to you. That was a pretty clever move. I think that's kind of the gist of what of what the point is. And so in other words here's the point is Jesus encouraging thievery is he encouraging dishonesty is he encouraging deceptiveness no of course not. But here's what he is encouraging wisdom prudence and stewardship so look at how he finishes, verses eight and nine. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of righteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So now what does this mean? Uh, you know, these are a confusing couple of verses. We're actually gonna put a bookmark here and we're gonna, we're gonna come back to them a little later, but for now, what we can say, just kind of boiling it down, is that you know here, the point is be a good steward. Be a good steward. You know you get that from the little proverb that Jesus sticks in here. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, which I which I take to mean something like this. He's saying although the manager's end was worldly, and his means were worldly, and while we should not share either his ends or his means. We should share his commitment to putting worldly money to work through eternal means for eternal ends. See that? So, or, you know, put this another way, if those who don't follow me, Jesus is saying, know how to put money to work for things that don't last, how much more should you, my followers, put money to work for things that last forever, So I think that's kind of the gist here, and we're we're gonna circle back and come to this this section again a little bit later, but first, we have to notice something that helps us make sense of why Jesus says what he says about the proper use of money in the first place. Underneath all of what he's saying about how we use money are some pretty radical beliefs that Jesus has here for what money is in the first place. Um, For example, when my brother, I've, I've got a younger brother, when he was probably like two or three years old, I remember we had, I think it was this old minivan that had a cassette tape deck, if you guys remember those. One day, my mom uh, catches my brother like putting pennies into the little cassette deck, and you know, you know what happens. The thing breaks, and you know, never got to listen to you know, Disney silly songs or whatever again. <laughs> so, so you know, obviously, it breaks the tape deck. The tape deck isn't for coins. It's for tapes. What it is determines how you use it. And in the same way, what you believe about what money is is going to determine how you use it. Get it wrong about what it is, and if you attach you know, kind of the wrong motives to money, it might ruin your life, just like my brother ruined the tape deck. <laughs> so, so we gotta look first at what does this passage say about what money is? What beliefs should we have about it? And I wanna answer that just in the form of three contrasts here that you see in the passage. Number one, Our culture says that money equals security. Jesus says money does not equal security. Our culture says money equals security. Jesus says money does not equal security. One of the reasons that Jesus uses the parable of the shrewd manager is to teach us to put our money to work for eternal things Uh, And and he also appends to that the fact that money itself is not an eternal thing. So look at verse 9. Verse 9 says that one day our wealth will fail. That's the word he uses here, that one day our money will fail. Now, of course, that's true in an ultimate sense. You know, when you die, it doesn't matter how rich you are doesn't matter you know, what an entrepreneur you were, you can't take your money with you. Um, as has been said, you'll never see a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse. So you can't take it with you when you die. It's also true though in an everyday sense because think about this. How does our culture encourage us to view money? How does our culture encourage us to think about money? Uh, one example, this is uh, something I once heard uh, Pastor Tim Keller remark on. We think of money as self-esteem currency, don't we? <laughs> you know, like if you have enough money, you can feel good about yourself. It's a form of security. Or we might think about money as a form of control currency. You know, if you have enough money, then, you know, you might think that you can control the outcomes of your life. You don't have any more need for God in that case. Or, you know, maybe for you money is comfort currency comfort currency, as though maybe, just maybe, money is the solution to the problem of pain. That if I just have enough money to buy a nicer car, or a nicer house, or a nicer vacation home, then I wouldn't have to feel pain. We want money to be our security, and Jesus says here, it never will. It's always going to fail you. You can't escape pain. It's going to come for you. You can't use it to prop up your self-image. You'll you'll still be insecure. You can't use it to get control of your life because sooner or later, life gets out of control. You know who knew this in the Bible was King Solomon. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes is such uh, such a gift of God to us because in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's about a guy who sought after all the things that we human beings tend to seek after. And God gives Solomon all those things so that Solomon can write to us and say, hey, like, I got to the top and I want you to know there's nothing there. <laughs> Solomon, you know, he's richer than any of us will ever be. And he says in Ecclesiastes, you know, look, I've been there, I've done that. God gave me everything a human could want, fame, glory, riches, intelligence, beauty, and I'm here to tell you it's not enough. So this is Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10. Here's what Solomon says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This Two, is meaningless. So our culture wants us to believe that money and security, and Jesus says, no, it's not. Sooner or later, it's going to fail you. Belief number one. Belief number two, our culture says your money is yours. Jesus says your money is mine. Culture says it's yours. Jesus says it's mine. Now, to get this, you have to keep reading for a minute. So, uh, look at the next few verses, verses 10 through 13. And and this little bit, Jesus, he's kind of offering a deeper interpretation of what this parable is about. Uh, Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And if you look in verse 12, here's where Jesus points this out for us. If you have not been, been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And this is essentially a way of saying that all wealth, all mammon, all money is to be understood as a gift from God. You know, sure, you have it, but it's on loan, and God is the lender. And this is something we see throughout the Bible. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? It's one of the most important verses, I think, in the Bible. Now, of course, you know, I don't need to tell you, but this is dramatically offensive to our American sensibilities because one of America's chief sins, probably not uniquely, but one of our chief sins is pride. And, and, uh, you know, kind of the quote-unquote self-made American man or woman. This myth in the American dream that just through sheer sweat and hard work, you can make it, you can do it, you can prove yourself. You know, your money is yours because you earned it. Now, now, of course, you know, there's a grain of truth to that, hard work, uh, things like industry, initiative, uh, you know, those are all biblical values. Just go read the book of Proverbs. They're all over the place. But, you know, they're a half-truth because uh, they're a half-truth since the Bible tells you elsewhere that, you know, you can be the world's biggest sweater, you can be the world's greatest worker, but then, you know, there's a problem very often, which is that life isn't fair. <laughs> you know, all it takes is, you know, you fall victim to injustice of some kind or another. It can all get swept away. You know, think about those people who, like, had their money invested by Bernie Madoff, and then this guy steals all their money. You know, was that fair? No, it wasn't. Uh, You know, it's also a half-truth, because the only way that you can be self-made is because of the one who made self. (laughs) In other words, your ability to be rich, to be successful, is dependent on a whole array of factors that you had no control over whatsoever, and uh, you know one of the ways that you can discover this is to do. Uh, I, I like to call this playing the backwards game. So here's how you play the backwards game. What you do is you just kind of start off thinking about something that you're really really proud of. You know, so if you've ever like stood in front of the mirror in the morning, and you just kind of thought to yourself, "Man, I just look really good today." You know, maybe you've maybe you've done this before. Well, you know, okay, think about this for a minute. Like, just work backwards. Okay, why do you look really good today? You know, maybe you kind of, like, gelled your hair, you know, put on makeup. Okay, sure, I'll give you that. But, you know, like, isn't some of it the fact that, like, it's your genetics, you know? Mom met dad, married dad, had you. And, you know, you can't control what your face looks like. (laughs) That was outside of your control. Just, like, work backwards to where that came from, and you realize, oh, wait a minute. Like, that was a gift from God. Or okay, like if there are any like school people in the room, people who are in school, have been in school. Maybe you did well in school, uh, and you thought, you know, man, like I just, I'm so proud of my good grades. Really put a lot of work into that. I'm not saying you didn't, but again, you know, how were you able to get those good grades? Wouldn't it be fair to say that some of that had to do with the educational opportunities that you were given? Maybe it had to do with the fact that you had parents who actively were involved in your education. You know, they helped you with your homework. They advocated for you to your teachers. You know, they, uh, you know, or maybe again, it's genetics. Maybe it's kind of natural smarts. You didn't control that. Or now think about money. You know, let's say that, like, you have enough money to buy a really nice car, you know, it's Gig Harbor, and so you're like, oh, now I really fit in, you know, I can drive a a Tesla, you know, or the other day I saw a Ferrari parked in the Cutters Point parking lot, very Gig Harbor, (laughs) and you might think, oh, I'm so proud of this car with the money I've earned, you know, well, again, you know, like, how much of that is the result of a whole bunch of things you couldn't control. You know, you were able to work and make all that money because God blessed you with physical health. You know, he lets you be born in America. You know, if you were born in a third world country, do you think you'd be driving a Ferrari? Probably not. <laughs> so, let's just read this one one little verse here that just kind of sums all this up. I don't, you know, this is just like the most un-American verse in the Bible, you guys, just be warned. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 God says to the Israelites, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So this means that everything we have, all the money that we have on loan, is on loan to us from God. Everything we have belongs to God. It's technically not your money. What do you have that you haven't received? So, Uh, you know, that's belief number two. We want to think that our money is ours. The Bible says it's actually God's. And then last of all, number three, our culture wants you to believe that you are in charge of your money. But Jesus says, beware that your money isn't actually in charge of you. Beware that your money isn't actually in charge of you. Now, again, you know, the cultural view, it's understandable, right? Because you think, of course I'm in charge of my money. You know, I choose where I spend it. I choose where I invest it. My money serves me. It gives me what I want. But notice how Jesus speaks of money in verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's, do you see that it's being spoken of here? Not as just a mere tool. It's being spoken of as a power. Something that can actually overpower you and, and be your master. Something that uses you rather than the other way around. And why? Well, you know, it's because of the same reason that all those, you know, old dead guys, the, you know, Seneca, Schopenhauer, Emerson, all of them basically said the same thing. Money can enslave you. You know, there's the, uh, the famous entrepreneur from a couple, you know, about a hundred years ago, John Rockefeller, it's said of Rockefeller that he, for a number of, uh, you know, some, some season of his life, lived on a diet of milk and crackers. Because his stomach was so racked with anxiety about losing his massive fortune that he couldn't afford to eat anything else. You know, it seems like this guy has all this money at his disposal. Money actually has mastered him. Which is why it's been said that money's a great servant And it's a terrible master. So do you treat it that way? Are you wary of money? Are you wary of money creeping up on your heart? Or on your sense of security, your sense of identity? Are you controlling it or is it controlling you? And the Bible knows. The Bible's so wise. It knows, oh, how easy it is for money to creep up on you and control you. Which is why Paul uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So who's in charge? Is it you or is it it? So just, you know, okay, let's summarize here. Jesus is kind of laying out, okay, here's some things that like you have to know about what money really is if you're even gonna get any headway and not having it totally take over your life. So, you know, number one, the culture says money's security. Jesus says, no, it's not. Culture says, money is yours. Jesus says, no, it's not. Culture says, money's your slave. Jesus says, be sure it's not actually your master. Be sure you don't fall into the deadly trap of money. Which then leaves us now with another question. Okay, so if money can be a trap, well, okay, okay. <laughs> What then does a follow, you know, how should a follower of Jesus really use it? <laughs> you know, what what do you do with this with 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 the stuff? And and that's the, the second point. You know, what do you believe about it? Well now, this is kind of the 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 main point here. What do you you know how do you use money? How do you use money? And okay, here's the first thing that this passage is gonna say to us about how we should use it. And it's basically to say, use it. <laughs> put it to work, put it to work. And specifically, use it for eternally significant ends. So look again at verse nine. What, you know what is, what is the teaching that Jesus draws from the parable of the manager? In verse nine he says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now there's, there's a contrast here. Uh, the worldly manager said, I'm going to use my money so that people will receive me into their earthly dwellings, verse four. Jesus says, use your money so that you, be, you will be received into heavenly dwellings. So there's a contrast between kind of like an earthly end and a heavenly end. And in heavenly ends, what are those? An eternal end is, is something that advances the will of God. And of course, that makes sense. If all of our money belongs to God, then we should use it, we should steward it as though we're stewarding someone else's money for someone else's ends. So, so what we gotta do now is let's just, let's flesh this out a little bit. What does it look like to use money for eternal ends? Now, now first of all, the, the fact that, that money can even be used for eternal ends tells us something really significant about money, and that's that money matters. It really does. You know, we tend to divide our lives and kind of say, okay, you know, here's the spiritual side of my life and then here's the secular side of my life. So the spiritual side of my life, you know, that's like going to church and reading the Bible and praying to God and like all the stuff that happens on Sunday. But then we kind of will sometimes think, you know, then there's like Monday through Saturday. That's when I go to work and when I go to school and when I run errands and when I watch TV. And and maybe even, you know, kind of that's when I spend my money. But that's a wrong way to think about it. The reality is, everything in our lives is spiritual. There is not one iota of what we are and do that Jesus doesn't lay claim to. There's a famous pioneer missionary named Samuel Zvemer who once said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And that includes lordship over our money. Just one implication of this, you know, there may be some of us here who are, are too obsessed with money, you know, in a way where it's actually controlling us. But then there's the flip side. There may be some of us here who are actually too apathetic about money. Um, you know, one of the things that's actually convicted me from this passage is that it's made me realize I, I don't really pay enough attention to stewarding my money well. You know, so verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth. So, like, Money in this life, (laughs) Jesus says, Who will entrust to you the true riches? Now, one aspect of that faithfulness, as we'll see in a minute, is actually giving it away. But I think it's also fair to say here that at the very least, this also includes like just basic money smarts. You know, like things like not overspending, not being wasteful should be taken as discipleship issues. And I think the same thing can be said about putting your money to work. You know, this is convicting for me because I'm a saver. You know, I love just, like, putting money away, knowing it's there, not having to think about it, and and this passage convicts me because it reminds me, I've just been too apathetic about actually, like, taking some steps to put my money to work so that instead of just it sitting there, like, I've invested it, found a way to make it grow, make it do something. Now, just one reason this might matter in your life, like, at the, you know, kind of rubber-meets-the-road level you know, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that if you're a Christian, your ambition should be to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And if like me, you're, you're kind of like a little indifferent or apathetic to, to like thinking through how you can manage your money wisely, so that you're actually setting yourself up to be someone else's financial burden when through like, you know, just a little savvy saving or investing that could be avoided, then, then for you that should be seen as a discipleship issue. Now of course, you know, I'm not saying that like any of this is apart from the fact that like God's the one who provides for us, you know, God is the one who um, we ultimately should seek over, over money, we should never put our security in our retirement or our an investment, and, and you might even wanna wrestle with like, okay, like what does it look like for me to follow Jesus in those areas. That might look different depending on how God has called you. But that's not to the exclusion of thinking, how can I be as wise and savvy with my money as possible? So if you're a young adult, you know that may mean you need to think about what it looks like to eventually get to a place where you can be financially independent from your parents so that you can support a future family someday, if that's something that God's put on your heart. Um, you know, maybe it looks like kind of taking a basic financial literacy class, you know, Financial Peace University or something like that, so that you can be smarter about how to use the money God has given you. So, so money matters. How you handle your money matters. And handling your money wisely, you know, maybe even being a little bit entrepreneurial with your time, your talents, your, your finances, that falls under the umbrella of things that Christians can pursue and even maybe should pursue. Uh, and so, you know, that could be for, for the reason that Paul gives. You know, you don't want to, like, be a burden to other people. Uh, or, you know, there's actually another reason that Jesus gives for being smart about your money in this passage. Look one more time at verse 9. Um, for just another way that Jesus flushes out what it means to use money for eternal ends. Not just to steward it wisely, kind of even according to secular wisdom, but to steward it wisely so that it makes a kingdom impact. So, so verse nine speaks of using money to make friends for yourselves so that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So what does this mean? We well, you know that anything we give to God, you know, all of it, no matter kind of like whatever the, the, the practical outcome of that is, um, you know, it's, it's to glorify God. Um, you know, the Bible says that we give first to God even before we give to others. So you know, that means that like, if you gave your money to, someone, to, to, to a church, and then maybe they mishandled that money in some way, you know, in God's eyes, what matters is that you gave it to him, <laughs> and he'll deal with the people who mismanaged it, but, you know, ultimately, when we give, it's to glorify God. But, you know, there is another really cool dimension to this, <laughs> which is just how exciting it is to think about the ways that our money can further the kingdom through bringing others into the kingdom. I think that may be what Jesus is saying when he's talking about like others welcoming you into heavenly dwellings. You know, just just imagine, you know, like you get to heaven someday and a complete stranger walks up to you and like introduces you, like shakes your hand, and says, you know, it was because of the money that you tithed to church or that you donated to a missions organization or that, you know, y- y- whatever you gave it to that, that paid for the missionary that led you to Christ or that, you know, paid for the Bible that opened your eyes or paid for the Christian school or college or hospital where you first heard the gospel and received Jesus. I mean, that is so exciting. That you're, like money, Jesus says, it doesn't last. But you can actually use something that doesn't last to do something that will last. You know, maybe you're here, and maybe you know that you're actually really good at making money. You know, you're like a business person, you're an entrepreneur, and maybe you've even struggled to know how you can make an impact for the kingdom of God without, you know, being a pastor or an overseas missionary. This passage says that your impact can be absolutely enormous. Uh, You know, about 500 years ago, there was a guy named William Tyndale. Maybe some of you guys have heard of him. He was one of the people who was the first to translate the Bible into English. Back then, the Bible really wasn't available in normal people languages. It was just available in Latin, and so that meant that most people couldn't read the Word of God for themselves, and there was a young man named William Tyndale who had a burden that people would be able to read the Word of God for themselves, and it was actually illegal at that time to translate the Bible into the common languages. And so he had to do this very secretly. It was, it was a big deal. But what a lot of people don't know is that behind William Tyndale, there was a friendship he had with a wealthy businessman named Humphrey Monmouth. Humphrey Monmouth, he was a famous businessman. He heard about what Tyndale was doing. His heart was moved and stirred. And behind the scenes, he was him, William Tyndale's patron. And had it not been for his giving, there wouldn't have been what William Tyndale did. Or, okay, let's just like bring this into the present. Back in the 1990s, in this area, uh, there was a movement of God where a number of different pastors, Gig Harbor, Tacoma, Pierce County, would all come together uh, down in Cannon Beach, Oregon, for these pastor prayer summits, and it was just... You know, a, a time when actually a lot of the churches that today we might look at as sort of pillar churches in Gig Harbor were just getting started. And what does God do in this time? Gets all these pastors together and pray. Okay, now I can't prove this to you. I have no evidence for this. But, you know, I just, I just have this, you know, kind of theory where I just sort of fancy that I think one of the reasons for the ways that we've seen God build the kingdom in our city it's because a bunch of pastors came together to seek his heart in unity. That's something that delights the heart of God. Well, did you know that one of the reasons that that was possible was that there was a wealthy businessman in this area, a guy named Dave Warehouser. maybe you've heard that name before, who paid for buses to bus all those pastors down to Cannon Beach to have those prayer summits. So even in our day, there are so many kingdom wins and kingdom opportunities that can be had through people who have means to fund them. And just one last thing on this, just think about missions here for a minute. Did you know that right now there are 3.28 billion people who are a part of unreached people groups, people who uh, don't have or even know the name of Jesus? That's 41.5% of the world's population. And yet, according to, to one guy's assessment, Americans have recently spent more money buying Halloween costumes for their pets than the amount given to the unreached. And then here's another statistic. Evangelical Christians could provide all of the funds needed to plant a church in each of the 7,400 unreached people groups with only .03% of their income. Wow. (laughs) Look at the opportunity. And look at the good news this passage is for how we can use what God has given us to really do something that matters. So Jesus says your money's gonna fail, it's not gonna last. This, th- this passage says, look, you can do something with it. Uh, author Randy Alcorn in his little book on giving says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And man, I don't know about you, that makes giving exciting to me. It even makes it a little bit fun. <laughs> so so here's what Jesus is saying to us about, okay, not just what you believe about money, not just how to use money, but then one final question for us, um, which is just this last one. How, are, you know, are you actually free? from it. You know, you might be kind of sitting here, you might be thinking, wow, this is great, uh, but you're kind of like, I, I don't know that I can do this. Like money just, it's got a hold on my heart. I just don't know that I actually kind of have the security in Christ to like let go of money in order to embrace this awesome thing that Jesus is calling us to. Um, and that's the attitude of the Pharisees. So if you look down verses 14 and 15, uh, Luke tells us the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. You know, they missed out. They missed out because they loved money more than God. Money was their master. So the you know, question that raises for us, are you free of money? And if not, how do you get free of money? And, and, and if you want to answer that, you've just, you've just got to read to the end of Luke's gospel. <laughs> because at the end of Luke's gospel, what happens? Jesus dies, he's crucified, he lays down his life. And this is the guy who's the richest, wealthiest person who ever lived. You know, it, Scripture tells us that before Jesus came, he enjoyed all the glory, all the majesty, all the honor that the Father gave him. That, 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 that means wealth. That means riches. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he's giving it all up. He's giving it all up. Um, you know, I, I'm not a married man. <laughs> if I were, I'd have a wedding ring. And you know, the way that you know that that wedding ring is valuable it's not because it's made out of something rare. There's lots of things that are rare. But the reason you know it's valuable is because of the price that someone's willing to pay for it. And when Jesus dies, he, he's, he's giving a valuation of you. He's saying, look, I, what I'm doing on the cross, it's an infinite cost, infinite price. That's how much you're worth to me. That is how much you are worth to me. A price that, that, that no one can even comprehend or wrap their mind around. And if you see that, if that really hits you, if the penny really drops, then then it's gonna free you from money's power. You know, what more could you want than Jesus who paid that kind of price for you? And if you see Jesus, that'll free you from the hold of money so that instead of it using you, you can use it to bear fruit that will last for eternity. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us uh, to have to figure out finances and money on our own, but um, Lord, that you just give us an amazing and exciting opportunity to, to use it for something that actually matters. Uh, Lord, help us just to have a, a, a joy and a passion to, to not hold on and cling to things that don't last, but to pass it on, um, to, to, move, to pay it forward, um, to actually put our wealth to use for things that bear fruit for eternity. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Locals, you cannot love both God and money. But locals, money does not love you like Jesus loves you. Money cannot forgive you for your sins. Money to not die on the cross for you. Money, if it is buried, will not resurrect three days later. Church, no one will ever love you like Jesus loves you. So love God and use money to glorify His name. Go in peace and go be the local church. Thank you for listening to Local Church Podcast. To learn more about our Jesus community, visit us at www.localchurchgh.com. Thanks again for listening and God bless.